One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's a Champions League final round of group games edition of the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen and Murph here in studio. Ken is not here. I'm going to break that news to you. First of all, he's in Las Vegas covering the Conor McGregor-Jose Aldo fight. If you want to hear Ken's impressions of Vegas on his second visit to the city, he wasn't exactly blown away the first time. We've chatted to him for the other podcast out today. This show is all about Manchester United's elimination in Wolfsburg against Wolfsburg and Arsenal's spectacular performance in Athens last night. We're going to have Arsbog's Andrew Mangan in a little while and we'll be talking to John Bruyne about Manchester United. Uh, in the meantime, Murph, if I was to describe one striker... Well, hi Murph, first of all, how are you? Hello there, Owen. If I was to describe one striker in the Premier League as an animal, what striker do you think I'd be talking about? Uh, Danny, no, uh, Diego Costa? No, that was Arsene Wenger's description for Olivier Giroud a while back, according to an Amy Lawrence article I was reading today. Not the description that first springs to mind when most of us see Olivier Giroud play, necessarily, but he was brilliant last night with his hat-trick. It was an Did the business a- last animal-like night. hat-trick last night. It was pretty animalistic. Um, I mean, I'd, is that a compliment, really, being called it? I mean, in the vast animal kingdom... There are not alone many different types of animal, but also many different animals with many different characteristics. I mean, to be described as a, as a sloth, for instance. I mean, he's a sloth is an animal. Yeah, it's a good point. You always assume in the rarefied air of professional sport that when somebody is called an animal, mm. it's either... It's either meant to be highly insulting or highly complimentary, but either way, the connotations, the animals you think of when they, even though it's a catch-all term, tend to be... You know, your your lions, your, well, your killers. In, it, it, you know, you're you're a wild person. You know, feral, untamed. Mm, I hadn't thought that maybe they're talking about sloths and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I I just asked for more information. What kind of animal, Arson? You know, and then well, if, uh, if I can imagine him actually taking that question taking on, board it on board and, and deciding which uh, which spirit animal. Uh, uh, Olivier Giroud is imbued with. I've noticed a rather worrying trend for Manchester United supporters. 
I, I'm, not, I'm not alone in noticing worrying trends, I don't mm. think. But All of the defeats, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, all of the, the defeats will be won. No, more in terms of the tone of the coverage and one particular aspect of it. Uh, I don't know if you saw Gary Lineker, he had the full complement of Manchester United. If you count Michael Owen as a Manchester United legend. Michael Owen doesn't. No. Uh, well, the, uh, I, 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 I don't want to put words in No, go for own. it. But are you referring to the moment when Gary Lineker said they're turning into Liverpool? Yes. Uh, Michael Owen said something along the lines of, well, I'm the only one smiling over here. Oh, B- yeah, basically disregard- completely part. disregarding his Man United career in favour of all of you know I'm a Liverpool man always have been yeah Lineker said is it a bit like that that they've lost their touch in the way that Manchester United that Liverpool did in the 90s and Rio Ferdinand just had his head in his hands from about as Lineker started to frame the question mm. he had his head in his hands and Skulls just well, he looked like Skulls does cause slightly like he's about to give out about something the general <laughs> Paul Skulls demeanour these days but uh, also Richard Keyes in uh, I was re- reading Richard Key's blog yesterday, remember, as I always do. It doesn't seem to be called Keys to the Kingdom anymore. Or, or no, your key your to... Your key to sport. Sorry, your key to sport. Keys to the Kingdom. Your, that would be Jack O'Connor's book. Yeah, you're time. thinking of a slightly Jerry different Perry. character, yeah. I don't know if it... No, hopefully they do still call it your key to sport. It was just the way it showed up on my phone. It was maybe just a mm. some sort of formatting issue. But hopefully they haven't dispensed with the name. But well, why would, yeah. why would Richard they? Richard Key's also made that comparison. And he thinks that Gary Neville should be the manager. He's saying, what, what the hell is Louis van Gaal there as manager when you've got a guy who knows the Manchester United DNA mm. as kind of like Graham Soonis knew the Liverpool <laughs> it's DNA true, yeah. Yeah. but we'll get back to United. combative ex-player he's just the guy we need to restore the luster there are comparisons it, I think it has to go a little bit further before I wonder at what point Liverpool supporters really started thinking this is gone it seemed looking back now it all seemed quite sudden Yeah, it seemed as though the, the, you're turning this to the decade you're, you're, you're going from the 80s and 90s and Liverpool are still right, really right at the top. And pretty quickly, by 92, mm. they're just about getting an FA Cup win against, wasn't it, Sunderland? Sunderland, yeah. And, and, and are already, already by that stage, the sort of, the calibre of players playing for them has gone rapidly downhill. I know there's a retrospective argument now that that was happening already right at the end of the 80s, but they still look pretty good to me around that time, and it, it did seem to happen within a couple of seasons, so maybe well, it, it, it isn't I mean, too soon to say it now about United. Yeah, and you only ever... It's very easy to, be, to pinpoint the exact moment when a team is finished after uh, it's happened. Ten years after, after it happened, happened, yeah. But I mean, Mick O'Dwyer stayed on as carry manager for four years after their last All-Ireland win in you know, in, in a different sport, obviously, but in 1986, they won their last All-Ireland in eight and 11 years. And each year for, I think, four more years, he came back and said, well, obviously, you know, there's still loads of brilliant players here. Whereas looking back in history now, it's like, well, they, they won up until 1986 and then the team was finished. But the team, do, teams don't finish like that. Yeah, that's funny because that's exactly how that is written. Yeah. They kind of got this one and that was... That was it's it completely them, ignored. Was like the, this idea, it, it's eight Irons in 11 years and no one even thinks to add on the years after that when they didn't win anything and they were getting well beaten by Cork and Munster. So, I mean, it's not as simple as that. And I'm sure if you asked a Liverpool fan in 1994, are you still the biggest club in England? Well, of course we are. Mm. I mean, we won all those leagues for the last two decades. Well, obviously we are. Um, but the... You know, history history has shown that to be to be not not to have been the case at the, so even at that time. Possibly fair comparisons between the two at this stage. Even though United fans probably won't want to hear that, we're going to get back to that a little bit later. As I said, Arse blogs Andrew Mang and those popped into studio. You must be pretty happy, Andrew, after last night. Yeah, could have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the considering the 
all the everything going into it, the injuries, the need for at least a two goal win, which is always difficult uh, in terms of how the, the other team know what you're going to do or what approach you're going to take. Was it one of the best nights European wise under Wenger? Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, Arsenal put themselves in a terrible situation with the first two games of the, the group stage, losing to Olympiacos and losing to Zagreb. Um, and you look back at that, that win against Bayern Munich at home and how crucial that was. Uh, that was a great night. And, and perhaps that instilled some of the belief that they needed for last night. You know, but it's, it's fine margins and moments. You know, there was a, a moment in that Bayern game when Lewandowski was more or less clean through and Petr Cech made a huge save. There was about 20 minutes to go. Arsenal go on and win 2-0 in the end uh, and set themselves up for last night. And I think, you know, what you're saying about injuries and, uh, you know, recent form hasn't been that great either. Uh, to, to go and do what they did last night was was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, their consistency is remarkable. 16 seasons in a row getting mm. into the knockout stages. Is there a residual confidence that comes from that? Uh, obviously, the, the confidence may be gained from winning leagues in the earlier years under Wenger's has ebbed away. But might there be something in the psyche there where Arsenal are comfortable in those those sort of late group games in Europe? Maybe so. I mean, some of the late games have, have been some of the worst for Arsenal because they've usually already qualified. And course, I think yeah, yeah. there was that, that stat that they played Olympiacos three times before and, and never beaten them. But then they were playing players like Mark Randall and Thomas Cruz and these guys who just, I don't know where they are now. Um, so I, I think it was a little bit different, you know, to go into the last game knowing that they had to do something something quite specific. They they had to win either 2-0 or, or beyond that, I think uh, 2-1. I mean, that was the situation last night. 2-0 was great for Arsenal. Um, 2-1 saw them go out uh, and 3-0 means that Olympiacos have to score three goals. So there was these weird sort of balance in the game. Um, but I think the experience that's in the squad, you know, one of the accusations that's been levelled at Arsenal down the years is that they haven't necessarily had the experience of uh, to, to get them through situations like this. This is of a hugely experienced team now, some good young players, but it's backed up by people like Mertesacker and Czech and Ozil and, and these guys who've been there and done that. And I think that, that played a part last night. Yeah, it was quite striking, I thought, when you look at the Champions League week as a whole, that when Manchester United were decimated by injuries, they're really down to bare bones stuff mm. and players who have barely played a game for the club before whereas Arsenal can still feel a strong team yeah I mean people talked about Arsenal's lack of depth um, during the summer and I don't think it was so much lack of depth but maybe a fear that the quality wasn't there and then you look at injuries to, to Wilshire, to Ramsey, to Welbeck, to Walcott, to Oxlade-Chamberlain, uh, to Alexis even and, and what's the option then is a guy like Joel Campbell who's played 50-odd games for Costa Rica, played at a World Cup, you know, that, that's reasonable depth, I think, for for a club like Arsenal, for any club. And, and his progress, having played a few games, has been really great. Oz's assist for the second goal was absolutely beautiful. It was one of the all-time great assists. So, so many tricks in it, one it, go. It was Bergkamp-esque, wasn't it, it really in a way? The, the way control, he held it. Yeah, yeah. It was great. You know, and that's it's great to see a guy who was probably on the verge of leaving the club or being on his way out. And, and it's happened a few times uh, to Arsenal in the last 12 months where you look at a player who's probably not someone considered a first-team player, the door opens because of injury, uh, Coquelin, Hector Bellerin, and now Joel Campbell, and these guys have actually come into the side and, and given Arsene Wenger something to think about beyond actually selling them or loaning them somewhere else. You <laughs> yeah, know? think about what they might actually do. <laughs> actually, for this guy might be useful. Yeah, uh, Oliver Giroud has been, well, very useful. More than useful on a lot of occasions. We were, talk- we're talking about this at the top of the show that Wenger has a certain view of Giroud that ha- hasn't always been shared by Arsenal supporters, I think, or by football fans in general. He sees him as this really tough guy, this mentally strong guy, an animal he's called him in the past. Mm. Uh, 
I don't know, maybe something about his demeanor doesn't obviously lend itself to characterizing him in that way. But yeah, yeah he was strong last night. I guess it depends how you view him because sometimes Giroud can be really frustrating because he is what, he's six foot three, six foot four, and he's strong, he's physical, and he can be bullied out of games and he lies there and he waggles his finger when he's hurt and you think, oh, come on, just toughen up a bit. And then last night, when Arsenal really needed somebody to step up and be the guy, he, he was that guy, you know? Mm. Uh, I, I think probably the issue with Giroud is people look at him and and they view him through a prism of what he's not rather than what he is. You know, the, uh, this clamour for a world-class striker in the summer, I think every Arsenal uh, fan would love a world-class striker, but, who, you know, who's out there? Who, who was the guy that they could have brought in last summer realistically? You know, Benzema... Maybe is he that much better than Giroud? I don't know. That's interesting you know? that you talk about that. What exactly is a world class striker? Yeah. Certainly, we know the ones who, who the, the likes of Suarez and Neymar and these kind of guys who aren't going to go. So yeah. below below that level, is there much of a gap down That's, to Giroud? Yeah. I mean, I think those guys are on a different level, of course. You know, but then you've got the guys who are who are really very very good footballers, and I think Giroud is one of them. He scores consistently. Um, he has his ups and downs, and I think that's probably what what separates him from those other guys is that they have this remarkable consistency, the ability to do it in ninety percent of the games, whereas Giroud might do it in seventy five percent of the games. But you know, he scores a lot of goals. I think he's ten goals in his last twelve games for Arsenal. When Walcott's been out injured, when Welbeck's been out injured, he's stepped up, and he's uh, you know he's done it in different circumstances circumstances as well this season that he lost his place to Walcott when Walcott was fit but he came off the bench and scored regularly coming off the bench so I think that that does speak to a certain mental toughness and an ability to to try and prove the manager not so much wrong but to prove that he's still got a contribution to make yeah it does seem to be uh, mental maybe there's different ways of being tough we see that Diego Costa model which seems to be breaking down so much <laughs> this season he's just an obviously aggressive guy Diego uh, Giroud's just never going to give you that in, no. in the same in the same way. But Wenger certainly seems to, even though he has dropped him in the past, certainly seems to admire the way he bounces back uh, from these issues. He definitely does seem to have a bit of steeliness about him. Yeah, I mean, he's a team player. He had that, that game last season against Monaco. And I think, you know, in some ways he's a bit unfairly associated with that game that... Um, he missed a lot of chances in that first leg, but Arsenal were a shambles defensively, so um, he, he wasn't culpable on his own for, for that defeat. But I think in the next game, Giroud went out and scored. You know, and, and he does have a, 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 a bit of a history of bouncing back and being able to respond to the disappointments that he's had. And there have been disappointing games and performances and even uh, periods in his, his Arsenal career where things haven't gone uh, as well as they might have. But, you know, he's, he's up there and he's consistent and he scores and he's a, he's a real team player as well. This run they've had in the Champions League, how much importance do you attach to it? Because it's easy if you're knocking Wenger to say, well, yeah, you're qualifying for the Champions League every year you're qualifying for the knockout stages but you're not going you're not winning the thing you've, you've yet to win it mm. it, it looks to me that when you, that that is all true but to qualify so relentlessly for the knockout stages of the main competition in Europe is pretty impressive would you would you put in it as a serious credit in Wenger's column uh, yeah yes and no I mean I think yes as an achievement on its own when you break it down like that yeah nobody else has really done it have they I think even Real Madrid have, have missed out once or twice so I think from that point of view yes the other side of it is that you want Arsenal to do better and to go further and last season against Monaco was a great chance to do that you know when you finish second in your group and you draw Bayern or Barcelona or one of the big guys it makes it very difficult to progress beyond uh, the first knockout round but when you have Monaco you're thinking okay well mm -hmm. look 
now we have a quarter final if we can get through this game. And then, look, you never know what might happen. I mean, look at the, the sort of ragtag Arsenal team that made the final in 2006. You have a, a back four of Aboué, Senderos, uh, Colo Toure and Matthew Flamini. That was the back four that went that played at Real Madrid in the <laughs> yeah. Bernabeu and, and won. You know, so you, you just don't know what might happen. So I think yes, it's a it's a credit to them that they've done that. But I think now they really have to look at, at getting further uh, and and making quarterfinals and semifinals more regularly because they do have the talent in the team and the players that have been brought in in the last few years are guys who want to go further than just the knockout round. Well, how can they do that? What lessons would you think they can learn from Monaco last year? Uh, be a bit smarter. I thought they were, you know, they got themselves back to 2-1 in that game and then conceded straight after scoring because they went chasing a second goal instead of going, OK, we did well to get that one goal from this game. So a bit of bit of intelligence. Overall, I think you can look at perhaps trying to improve the squad again. You know, to it, it's, un, it's unquestionable that guys like Alexis and Ozil have, have brought this team up a level in terms of what they can do. Um, you look at the Manchester United performance earlier in the season. It was pretty swashbuckling and devastating. That's the kind of football that, that, they, can, that they can help Arsenal play. And that's the kind of football you need to play when you get to the latter stages of the Champions League. You need to be able to go toe-to-toe with the big clubs. So, again, investment in, in the side could be a way of, of uh, making that happen. The, in the shorter term, the RT panel last night were making the point that whatever happens in the Champions League, this should be a massive shot in the arm. Uh, with regards to their title challenge this should be a confidence boost it does strike as a type of team that has needed that maybe not so much in the last year or two but over the last 10 years has needed to convince itself that they are good enough do you think that this could actually do that that this, this could lead to a title challenge or is it just a completely separate entity I think that, yeah, you've got to take something from last night because the odds were against them. Um, and look at the players missing. Alexis, Ozil was sort of half fit um, with a calf problem. Walcott just back from injury. And, and we've been through the litany of players who weren't there, who weren't available. And I think when you can go away from home and, and win the way that they did and, and play the way that they did, then, yeah, you've got to, it's got to uh, increase the confidence that you have in the squad overall, right? So that, okay, we're without Alexis, who's sort of talismanic, who is a guy who has become the focal point of the Arsenal attack. Can we do it without him? Yes, we can, uh, because there are going to be periods when you're going to have to do that. So, yeah, I think it, it will be a big confidence boost for the squad in general, for certain players. And the Premier League is kind of crazy this well, is it. Certainly if you're comparing it to other teams, I don't know if that's the way top-level players and managers operate, but... They obviously watch the other games and they couldn't help but think, well, City aren't up to much. Mm. Chelsea are gone this year. Manchester United are struggling badly. This is our year. That's what they should be thinking anyway. This is the year to win the league. For sure. It's right there. I mean, it's it's open for a number of teams to win it, obviously. But Arsenal are, are right in there. Um, they've, got, they've got some depth if they can get some players back from injury. Uh, keep them fit and I think if they can make a, a shrewd signing or two in January because I think the injury situation requires that uh, particularly in the centre of midfield if they can get the right player in there I mean what's interesting I think is if you could get the right player in the centre of midfield with, with Aaron Ramsey Arsenal look a much more dynamic team with Ramsey in the centre of midfield he's uh, played two games there I think he's got two two assists and a goal to his name 
uh, and he'll do a job for you on the right, but to get the best out of him, you need him in the centre of midfield. So if you could get the right player to, to form a partnership with Aaron Ramsey... Have you anyone in mind? I don't really know. I don't know who that is or who they are or what they might cost yeah, or I'm whether sure they're some, Yeah, I'm sure there's one or two people being paid a lot of money at Arsenal yeah, you, you'd to like make to those think, calls. Yeah, you'd like to think there's a scout or two out <laughs> there. Who knows. Uh, but, you know, yeah. if, you could, if they could get that guy in... Uh, and sort of give the squad an extra boost then in January, why not? I mean, it's it's really open, and uh, I think they're going to have to go for it, yeah. All right, well, a good night last night. Andrew Mangan, Ars Blog, thanks so much. Pleasure as always. See if you do got this out with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans, just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! the biggest fool in Manchester. Murphy, are you impressed by the 16 qualifications in a row or does that hold very little water? I think it it would hold a bit more water if it was a different club involved. But I mean, you can't say they've been in the top four all these years in a row and then followed up with another stat along the lines of you managed to reach your level, you know, without disgracing yourself in Europe 16 years as well. In in a way, is it not more impressive that they have that it they aren't Barcelona, they aren't Real Madrid, they haven't had that, that sort of success, they're not Bayern Munich, and yet all of those teams had at least one year, mm. in some cases had a couple of years, where they just imploded, didn't make it. And they haven't had that maybe that's the stability of management as well, that you should be reaching if you've got a very good manager as Wenger is, you actually should be reaching your baseline every year. There's no reason not to, whereas the clubs that are in flux tend to be the ones maybe who can peak and yeah, away. well, yeah, you know the point I'm making, though, that you're, you're calling it your base level. You're reaching your base level. Mm. I mean, if you ask fans, right, instead of qualifying 16 times, you've qualified out of the group stages four times and you've won the Champions League twice. Or you've won the Champions League once. I would say that they would rather have won it the once than to have, you know, Arsenal oh, yeah. never won the European Cup. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I would say it's more sort of a tip of the hat to you, Arsene Wenger, but, you know, I wouldn't be putting it on your on your resume. So you're not taking the cap off completely, you're just tipping it. I'm tipping it forwards. Tipping forwards Tipping slightly. it forwards, yeah, almost to eyebrow level, and then placing it back on my head. That's as you're, much as Arsene Wenger's getting You're not quite bowing to the man no. uh, at, at, as things stand. Right, I've, tipped my, I've tipped my cap. What more do you want on? ESPN's John Bruin is ready to talk about Manchester United being knocked out by Wolfsburg. John, and we've been talking about this comparison to Liverpool in the 90s that Gary Lineker and Richard Keyes has, uh, have made in the last couple of days. Do you think, is there any comparison there now? Well, the, yes, I think there is. I mean, I, I did a piece earlier this season actually making that comparison. Um, and I actually spoke to Steve Nicholl, who's a colleague of mine at ESPN. Um, and he talked about how, uh, how it was being part of a team that was used to winning everything and then some, something it suddenly stopped when they got, in their case, they got a new manager in Graham Souness. Manchester United slightly different because obviously they've had two different managers after a great manager. Um, 
and the comparisons are there to be made. I mean, one of the things actually is if I don't know if you recall, but that that early nineties period, many of the noises off the noises being made by the media were ex Liverpool players who were actually you know the, were flush in the media at that time. In these days, it's a uh, the Manchester United ex United players are everywhere. I mean, I was watching the BT coverage the other night, and I think there was Michael Owen, Paul Scholes, Rio Ferdinand. All hugely unimpressed by the way that Manchester United are going, not really holding back in their criticisms of uh, what's going under under Louis van Gaal as compared to the teams that they played in. Um, and the thing that Steve Bickle did say to me, though, that he said that once it's gone uh, and that air of invincibility is gone and uh, you're playing teams that previously you rolled over with ease, it's almost impossible to get it back. And the rock did set in at Liverpool and the thing is that Manchester United, everyone said that the money that they've spent over the last couple of years, and I think it's 258.6 million was a calculation I did under under Louis van Gaal, would insulate them against failure. Well, that's not really been proved to be the case so far, has it? No, certainly not. And Richard Keyes, who I mentioned there, John, I don't know how often you read Richard's blog, but he says Every that... Time. Yeah, Every well, time. so do I. It's, it's unmissable for various reasons, but <laughs> he, he says that Van Gaal should leave now with his head bowed in shame. Would you agree? Well, I don't know how well he knows Louis Van Gaal, but that seems unlikely. Uh, you look at Van Gaal's exits from, say, Bayern Munich and Barcelona, uh, he tends to leave with a, a kiss-off to the media... Um, it rarely appears to be his fault. I think one of the things about Van Gaal is that um, the, the, he, as Van Gaal sees it, it's everybody else not seeing what he sees in the team. The team aren't responding to him, rather than being his his ideas. Um, whether he should walk away in shame, I can't really see that happening until the end of this season. Um, obviously, there are things going on behind the scenes whereby the Pep Guardiola factor has been thrown in. Um, the latest briefing suggests that Manchester United might think that they've lost out to Manchester City on that. Um, also, you've got to consider that those that appointed Louis van Gaal also appointed David Moyes as well. So they appointed two managers that haven't fitted in at Manchester United. That might put their own positions under a little bit of threat as well. So, um, the, the, the tectonic plates are, are turning a little bit. Um, but he, I could see Van Gaal going at the end of the season, and that does seem to be the desire of Manchester United fans, if you look at a couple of polls from fan sites. Um, but being sacked right now, that doesn't really seem to be the Manchester United way. No, it doesn't. He was asked afterward the game about Bastian Schweinsteiger's performance. There was quite a focus on Schweinsteiger with this one anyway. He did the press conference before the game, obviously, going back to Germany. He played poorly I think by everyone's admission is subbed off picked out by the camera near the end looking fairly forlorn on the bench and Van Gaal was asked uh, a a direct question about him and gave a pretty direct answer which was interesting says well you know the way he played tonight that's not the that's certainly not the level of the player who I managed at Bayern Munich Uh, how unimpressed have you been by by Schweinsteiger has he been playing as badly as people are saying is it one of those is he just one of those people who are easy enough to pick out as underperforming well I think he played badly in 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 United's biggest game of the season which doesn't really speak well of him and uh, if you look at the move for Wolfsburg's second goal 
he's absolutely kippered by Julian Draxler, you yeah. know, a much younger um, German player, a, a coming German player, a player German player of the future, whereas Schweinsteiger is essentially a player of Germany's past. He still plays for the international team, of course, but you have to say that there is a reason that Pep Guardiola let Schweinsteiger leave and, you know, that he certainly looks heavier set than he did at his peak uh, during that World Cup where he ran himself into the ground when the Germany won it. Um, the thing, that, the observation I would say watching Schweinsteiger play, as I have done a few times, is the touch is there, the uh, intentions are there, the speed with which he carries out his functions is perhaps not there. And he has a habit of slowing down the game. And that's even slowing it down the game for a Louis van Gaal team, which makes it makes it very slow indeed. Yeah, it, at times he reminds me of the Roy Keane of 2004-2005, the one who was ultimately bombed out of Manchester yeah. United. Yeah, it just the, the team at that stage had to compensate somewhat for Keane. So that's certainly the narrative the first put out afterwards. But there was no doubt that his powers on the field were waning, which is what, what might have led to his departure more so than anything he said on MUTV. Uh, is that the level that Manchester United are now at, that they're paying for the same sort of player that they were, would have been happy to get rid of from the club 10 years ago? I'm not sure about that. I think that the, you actually look through the list of players that Manchester United have bought, and each player, you, there is a, a good case for them buying them. Um, which which uh, Weinsteiger in particular, you know, to buy a player like that who, as you say, Pep, Bayern Munich wouldn't be selling this guy for a relatively small amount of money if they had any faith that he could still do it. Well, I mean, I suppose the thing is, uh, Van Gaal, you have to say, probably thought that maybe he, he could, if he altered Schweinsteiger's environment, he could. He could produce something like the player he worked with five or six years ago. The problem is that it is five or six years ago. Schweinsteiger still, I think, has something to offer. Uh, he's a popular player amongst the the other players and fans. He's got the know-how. The problem is you, that thing that you said about compensating. You've got to have the players to work around him. The, the problem is in Manchester United's midfield is there's no pace in that midfield. Ander Herrera is probably the quickest player who would play in that position. Van Gaal doesn't trust him. Morgan Schneiderlin's a player that I think uh, Chelsea and Arsenal both probably would have considered buying and I think we're both interested in, but Manchester United got him. But I don't think he's been very good for Manchester United because he hasn't got the pace uh, to, to lift Manchester United's tempo. So United needs somebody that can carry the ball and give Schweinsteiger the pace to do what he does best, which is picking out passes, controlling the tempo, pushing up the tempo a little bit more. But at the moment... The options aren't there for him. Remember that Manchester United's uh, passing uh, is more likely to go sideways and backwards than forwards at the moment. And that also is down to the manager's philosophy. Yeah, I guess Juan Mata is one of the guys who will pass it forward, but he was ultimately sacrificed, which surprised a lot of people midway through the second half. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think Van Gaal's substitutions get crazier every game. Um, Mata's problem is that uh, he is the type of player that Van Gaal doesn't like in that uh, he takes risk in possession. He, he uh, He's prepared to risk creating a scoring chance by taking the pass on or moving into a position where the pass not, might not get to him. Um, that is anti the Van Gaal philosophy, such as it's become, uh, such as, and as he gets older, I think it's probably it's become much more conservative. Um one matter, though, you've got to say, I mean, what was it, 37 million Manchester United paid for him at the beginning of 2014. That's only last year. Um, 
the thing is, he doesn't contribute. People talk about his assists and goals and things like that, but he doesn't. He doesn't contribute nearly enough to Manchester United's overall play. Now that might be something to do with the manager. In fact, it almost certainly is. But he has been a disappointing signing. Um, and I suppose the only thing to say about Van that Matter, who is the you know the uh, you know one of football's good guys, uh, a bloke that Manchester United allowed to write a blog on their site with little fear of him causing any controversy, does seem that there has there has been uh, some something of a word between him and Van Hal about the substitution. So cracks appearing even with Juan Mata. Well, hopefully when he writes the tell-all blog, it might slip through the, slip through the <laughs> net there. It might pass by the editor unnoticed. <laughs> we, get, we get a bit of fun out of that. But just a, a quick word on Gary Monk, the big Premier League story of the week. I saw you writing about this. Um, it, Swansea like to put out the idea that they're a very patient club. They certainly seem to be a reasonably stable club. They tried to do things the right way. That's certainly the way that they would portray it. But they've been pretty brutal with their last couple of managers. Would you have any sympathy at all for Gary Monk? Well, I certainly, yeah, I would have sympathy for Gary Monk. Um, and I think, actually, I think there is sympathy for Gary Monk at Swansea. It's just that we forget that he's actually only just 36 now. Uh, he's 36 years old now. He's a, a manager who everything had gone pretty swimmingly for him. Now, the test of a manager is when adversity comes, how he responds to that. And Monk failed to turn the team around. Now, from what I understand, there were problems with some of his players. Uh, his relationship with the chairman, Hugh Jenkins, hadn't gone well, after, uh, especially after Hugh Jenkins suggested that maybe they might need a more senior head in there, a director of football to work with. Um, Gary Monk was... I, I went to a roundtable thing with him over the summer, just before the season started. The other journalists around me were asking questions about being the next England manager. Um and, and Monk, to be fair, said that he had a long way to go there. It would seem to me he's got an even further way to go than that now. He's someone that worked very, very hard at the job. He worked hard at, you know, these technological things that he did, like these sleep pods that Swansea were using during their, tra- their pre-season training. The fact that he would record his own uh, his own training sessions and listen back to them to see if he was doing the right thing. That's all good practice. That's all good practice. It's all as if, you know, he really wanted it to go well. But the problem is at football management, it's about man management and it's about managing the players who are below you and it's about managing uh, the chairman above you and their expectations. And that's where Gary Monk fell down and that's when results and eventually his career, uh, well, took a wrong turn. And I'd be interested to see where Gary Monk turns up next, but I don't think it'll be a Premier League club. All right, John, brilliant stuff as ever. Thanks a million. Cheers. FIFA made a movie recently. Did uh, they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Zach Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. With one or two explosives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, well, I do. And that was it. With one or two explosives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive views, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, FBI. And we've used the figure there. Well done to you.
Yeah, if you're a Manchester United fan in need of a reminder of better times, uh, may I suggest you listen to the big interview, Graham Hunter's big interview podcast in which he interviews Michael Carrick in the latest episode. Carrick comes across really well in it, but the probably the most nostalgic you're going to get is for the Champions League final against Chelsea. I've rarely heard as good a description of the thought process that goes into taking a penalty in a shootout uh, as I have in this one, in, in a, certainly in a high-level game, he talks about there being a few minutes left of extra time, and already he's thinking about penalties. Mm. His mind isn't, doesn't even really seem to be on the game at all. He's trying to steal himself for penalties, trying to be confident about it, and just trying to kind of work out what he's going to do. Then when he walks up to take it, when he starts to walk up, and then he thinks, this is going to take too long. I'm going to run up. So he jogs up, takes it, and you do see there's so many different approaches to it. So many players walk to try to look cool, but I suppose his thinking was, I'm not, I'm nervous, so the less time I have to think about it, uh, the better. Steps up, takes penalty, scores, and then it's almost afterwards he has this experience for the few minutes afterwards where he doesn't, he barely knows where he is. You know, he's he couldn't can't, can't look at the rest of the penalties for a start and he says there's a picture of all the rest of the players starting to celebrate and he's the last one now I always remember mm. Cristiano Ronaldo being quite consciously and very deliberately yeah. uh, the player who celebrates in a different manner but Carrick said he just it just took a, a second longer to register and he spent a few minutes where uh, I'm, I'm describing it as an out of body experience Carrick didn't quite go that mm. far but it just said it was just re, he was just trying to get back to reality and then after a few minutes he just start, it comes back to me starts celebrating but just the actual process that goes into thinking about taking a penalty in that scenario was absolutely I'd like to hear John Terry talk about the same uh, the same penalty shootout that would be rather interesting but it's well worth a listen in the meantime we were comparing Manchester United to Liverpool of the 1990s the current Liverpool have another injury problem surrounding Daniel Sturridge and he's now officially got to the stage and Michael Owen got in his career where play, people just get pissed off with get angry. this guy yeah. really just just anger there's not a hint of uh, this is a genuine injury it's not as though he's just taking in a game off there's a slight strain he's clearly got this it's a hamstring like they've had a scan you can't you can't play through this but it still uh, understandably annoys people yeah Jurgen Klopp said it is like it is so he hasn't yet got the English phrase for I'm annoyed but Oh, it is what it is. Well. Yeah. yeah, it is what it is. Basically, means I'm extremely annoyed, uh, but there's no real place for me to vent this annoyance. So I'm just going to say it is what it is, and just leave it at that. Yeah. Just you figure out why I'm as annoyed as I am. And he has already stated that Daniel needs to know the difference between. Uh, a serious injury and just an injury. So yeah. Klopp himself is getting annoyed with him. Anyway, by the time we talk on Monday, we'll know who we'll be facing at the Euros. The draw is taking place on Saturday at 5pm. I'm excited, Kieran. I'm very excited until the draw takes place and that might puncture the optimism somewhat. What's our dream draw? Uh, well, I don't know if you'll agree with me, on, but my my dream draw for the, for the Ireland team is Portugal, the Ukraine, Romania, Ireland. Well, I haven't, we got get out of that group. I haven't got it all in front of me. That doesn't sound that easy. Portugal, they're, well, they're top seeds. In in yeah, the top seeds yeah. are Spain, Germany, England, Portugal, France, Belgium. What Portugal I th- are the what? I, yeah, maybe England. We always fancy ourselves against England. Well, yeah, yeah, we do, <laughs> and, and maybe maybe with good reason. There's something about that game. Although when you look at it logically, that's the one where you can most readily compare the clubs our players are at and their status within those clubs to the clubs that the English players are mm. at and the, their status within those clubs. 
and you, you, there's such a direct comparison that would show you that we have inferior players. That would be slightly worrying, maybe. Mm. You're probably right, Portugal. I don't know. I'm wary of these teams at one superstar, though. And England yeah. will not be good at this tournament. They, I, I don't see... Oh, sure, they won every single game of qualification, but I'm going to state categorically that big tournament errors will get the better. But okay, we're going with Portugal. Okay, well... No, it's okay. I'll stick. With, I'll stick with yours. You, you've done more work on this. I'm so just this is our, this, that, that's our dream team. draw, so, our nightmare draw. No, but sorry, second. Po- oh, uh, second team is uh, the Ukraine. Ukraine. Okay, because okay. in pot two, it's Italy, Russia, Switzerland, Austria, Croatia, the Ukraine. Yeah. You're disagreeing with me on all these, are you? No, no. I think the I think no, Ukraine's the Ukraine. okay. Maybe Austria, but we have to play them. Are yeah. we drawn against Austria in the World Cup? And Austria are pretty good, apparently. I'm I'm gonna say the Ukraine. They needed a playoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How good can they be? Yeah. Part three, Romania, mainly because it's good vibes. We've got good vibes against the Romanians. Yeah, and Northern Ireland have already taken care of them, so we can do it too. Yeah, uh, our nightmare draw: mm. Spain, Italy, Poland, or Sweden, because of the they have one amazing player. Yeah, I mean Poland. I mean, should we be running scared from Poland? I don't think so. But Spain, Italy. Poland or Sweden. Sweden. Either of those are tough, yeah. Well, you've got to give us your... We say Sweden then? Yeah, let's Zlatan. say Sweden. Yeah, let's that say Sweden. I, I, you know, I don't want... I wouldn't want Zlatan playing in France. No. Nah. No, no, I, I, I don't want you. that. Uh, no, I don't want that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not that easy. Our dream group isn't that... Well, let's say England, the Ukraine, Romania ourselves. That's not bad. No, we'll take that. It's not bad. We'd, we, we'd take that. And... Let's face it, England being in our group, that would probably be a bit of a laugh. It's also important what group you end up in, in this case as well. Usually, we've been so used to this tournament having 16 teams, and in recent times the World Cup having 32 teams, that these draws are very straightforward. It's just that the winner, you, you go into a group of four, everyone's in a group of four, which is the same this time around. But you up to now, for the last number of years anyway, the winner will play the runner-up of another group, and the runner-up of the group will play the winner of say Group mm. B if you're going A versus B this is a hell of a lot more complicated than this Andy McGeady has worked through it for a really good piece on irishtimes.com it's a fairly complex and possibly unfair structure now because there are 24 teams which makes absolutely no sense it's great for us because we're in there now because of this new rule but it doesn't really make sense for the structuring of a tournament in which you go to a round of 16 from 24 so we're getting the, all the, t- the top two teams going through and then most of the best uh, the four best third place teams and there are, there's a certain weighting towards, for example, the group that France are going to be in, which Andy explains very well in his piece. So I would advise you to have a read of that if you get a chance. It's December 10th as we record this. So it may be time to at least start thinking about doing some Christmas shopping. You don't have to get up Can off I your ass right daft now. Yeah. I think I've done all my Christmas shopping. How? I, my, I was home. I was in Galway last weekend. My... Mum and dad told me what they wanted for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Went in and bought it. And while I was in buying those two items, I bought another item just because I saw, oh, that's good. Yeah. Walked home from the office yesterday. I have to walk along Grafton Street for a short span of that walk. Popped into two shops. Bought four more presents in half an hour. And I think I'm done. I've, well, I have to buy two more presents. Okay, well, for the rest of you normal people, don't yeah, worry. I know, I feel like a freak. <laughs> like a complete weirdo. But... There we are. Together, we will get there. We can all be like Kira Murphy and be fully loaded with Christmas presents in the next few days because what you can do is pick up a copy of the second Captain Sports Annual Vol. I presume you've bought a few copies. Well, when I say I've bought all of my, I've bought 
you know, ten copies of the second hand sports volume of volume one. Yeah. Dear, Hope you're not listening, yeah. brothers and mother and father. It's available in all good bookstores or online at secondcaptains.com. You can buy it for someone who you think will like it. If they don't like it, well, it's the old bowling You've ball. You bought it, haven't you? Who cares? You bought it. You, you can keep it. Maybe they'll give it back to you. You get to keep it for yourself. And if somebody else has bought one for you already, look, across. If you end up with two over Christmas, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All right. No, baby steps. Here. Don't worry. Yeah, baby steps. Together, we'll get this done. We'll get your shopping done. We can all be like Kieran Murphy. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. I should probably... Have I mentioned the other podcast we have? Oh, yeah, I did mention that Ken is in Vegas, uh, where the Conor McGregor build-up is being overshadowed by the National Rodeo Convention. That's the being, Wrangler uh, National sponsored Rodeo by Wrangler, Convention of course, yeah. 2015. So Ken's got a little bit on that. We also talked to Pierce Hanley, Mayo's Pierce Hanley, who's just signed a new contract with the Brisbane Lions. He's played more than 100 games for them. So he's absolutely flying in that one what else did we talk about in our other show and US Murph as well US Murph is an amazing form yeah absolutely sparkling form so uh, do listen to that if you get a chance at any stage in the next day or two thanks so much for listening to this one we'll talk to you soon ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.